This episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you in part by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. To learn more, and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com slash supertrain. And by Warby Parker. Warby Parker believes prescription glasses simply should not cost as much as an iPhone. They bypass traditional channels and sell higher quality, better-looking prescription eyeglasses online at a fraction of the usual retail price, starting at just $95. To learn more, go to warbyparker.com slash supertrain. Hello. Hi, John. Ba-ding dong. How's it going? Ba-ding dong. Ba-ding dong. What makes you want to sing that? Uh, what I really want to sing is bum 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 That's from the Star Trek. Yep. That's what I really want to sing, but I, I felt like that was a weird way to start the show. Yeah. I've been thinking about you for the last 40 minutes. Oh. <laughs> um, I've, been, uh, I've been listening to, uh, not to keep this too contemporaneous, but I'm listening to my friend's podcast uh, talking about Genesis. It makes me re- remember how much I love Genesis. Uh, Genesis the band or Genesis the, the uh, Gaia bomb? Oh, the first book of the Bible. Um, oh, right. Yep. Oh, yep, I yep. see. You were a really big fan of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. That's <laughs> like... Well, yeah, I, I got to say, faves? you know, I, okay, Genesis and Exodus, super strong books. I'll say. Okay. Then you got uh, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, a uh, little bit samey. You, you feel? You oh, feel? brother. I, I think they did not have one cohesive editor for that. I think Moses probably farmed it out. I think, I think Moses did some good work on the first two mm-hmm. because you know what? He had a stake in it. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the three, it was all like the it was like filling out contracts. You know what's interesting about you will numbers. not lie down with shellfish in the desert. Meh. What's interesting about numbers is that that's the moment that Peter uh, realized, or I'm sorry, was revealed. <laughs> it was revealed to Peter by God uh, that uh, he wasn't just out there trying to convert Jews. Moses. Uh, yeah, Moses. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Peter came along till later chapters. Hol- Holy Moses. Holy Holy Moses. Peter one. We call Peter him. one, Peter one, in <laughs> Leviticus. No, sure, you don't want to confuse it with Simon Peter. Yeah. It's totally no, different. No, no. Peter. It was. It was in. It's Acts. Oh, sure. You got the Acts and you got the Romans. Sure. Yeah, the Romans. Yeah. Acts and Romans, I think, are uh, two two of the strongest books of the uh, of the New Testament. I feel like Letter to Corinthians oh, is where please. I really get engaged. Oh, look at me. I'm John. I know the B sides. You know? <laughs> because it just feels like, look. Until the New Testament, what was it? It was just a bunch of it was just a bunch of crosstalk. Mm. You know what I mean? It was just a bunch of like guys in the desert trying oh, to yeah. trying to micromanage whatever what what each other. It goes straight back to your Star Trek yeah. because really you got uh, the, the what we call the Old Testament is, is like the original Star Trek mm-hmm. TOS we call it, mm-hmm. and then really uh, you got uh, you got the new, new Testament is kind of like uh, Star Trek: The New Generation. Well, and so and that, but the thing is, it's it's new generation, but it it, it casts backwards, mm. and it re, and it reveals all that was all that we didn't understand about Kirk's voyage, personal yes. voyage, right? Right. The or, first, or uh, you know, I think a lot of that you get into the uh, Joshua Judges Ruth, you get a lot of uh, Captain Pike. Oh, Ruth. What I'm so what I'm what I like to think about is first interracial kiss on television. Mm. What is the equivalent in the Old Testament? George Takei and Adam West. Mm. No. What's the first interra- first interracial kiss? Was it was it uh, was it Bill Cosby? 
No, it was Kirk and Uhura. Oh, hot. See, that's big that's big news. And she there was, was a handsome woman. Well. My goodness. You know what Yvonne Craig uh, passed this week? Yvonne Craig? Was that, uh, I think I used to use his shampoo. Uh, I think you're thinking of, gee, your hair smells terrific. Um, no. Uh, no, no, back, it was, back, it was a beer shampoo. That was what I used. Oh, beer shampoo. No, this was uh, Batgirl. Batgirl passed. Oh, Batgirl. Batgirl, one of my, my primary original hard crushes Ooh. has passed. Easy. Yep. Uh, well, you know, what happens is people get old. Oh, dear. They get older mm-hmm. first, and then they get old. They covered this in mica. Then they're old serves. for a while. Yes. If they're lucky. <laughs> That's what I love about old people. Mm-hmm. Or about young people, the, the, the millennials, the snake people. They go, oh, you're so <laughs> old. And I'm like, have you thought about the alternative? Uh, well, and That's also. going to be looking pretty good to you soon, buddy. Also, oh, there's old, and then there's old. Oh. You get old and stay old for a while. You know, there's something you just keep. You're still old, mm-hmm. but what happens is just the moisture goes out of you. Oh dear me! Yeah, you know, this is the year in November. Uh, I, I begin my final year inside the demographic, the only demographic that matters. I, t- I turn four, turn forty nine. <laughs> Are you the, you're, you're in the clash? <laughs> <laughs> That's the only demographic that matters. <laughs> um, Spanish yeah, bombs. Right. And then I have gonna, so many BMs. You're gonna get the uh, you're gonna get the slash treatment, <laughs> and they're gonna put you on the cover of AARP, whether you like it or not. <laughs> he was. They put slash on the cover of AARP. Oh, slash! Like, hey, slash! Welcome. How old do you have to be? Fifty. Fifty. Oh dear. Now, what about Duff? I like to see Duff on there. He's a handsome man. Oh, Duff's forty-eight. Wait, really? Duff no, McGagan's 48? No, he's not 48. What am oh, I, my God. What am I? No, he's not. He's, he, he's like a good-looking 72. Duff's got to be Duff's got to be 51. All right, here we uh, go. Let's see. How, how old is Duff? Well, 50-ish? Duff McKagan. 50, 50, 50. Yeah. What is he? Duff McKagan. Duff McKagan, 51. Yeah, is that right? No, well, he's born in 64. Hey. So, 51. Yeah. God, look at that guy. I saw a video for um, live Sweet Child of Mine the other day. He looks he looks so much better now. Fe- February, not to say too much here. He's six foot three. Yeah. Uh, he's been married three times. He uh, is uh, fifty one. Born in February, sixty four. Yeah, so uh, definitely Generation X, Gen X, as we call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he was not. He didn't look good when he was do- doing a lot of drugs. It was not a good look on him. He had that souffle hair. But he looks amazing now. Yeah, look at him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he looks like something that was carved out of mahogany and then uh, painted. Mm-hmm. And then, then like left in a park for a couple years and repainted. <laughs> I feel like that is a look I wish I had. Oh, look at you know, Can you believe you can pull off that hair? That's amazing hair. Yeah. I look like something that was, first of all, delivered in scoops. And then uh, some scoops were piled onto one another. Designed in California, assembled in China. <laughs> and then shellacked. Mm-hmm. So some sco- first you throw some scoops down. <laughs> you know, like a little filmy sweat. And you shellack it. That's I right. don't think so. I, and, then you look, you, and then you missed it. You look Shakespearean. You look Shakespearean. Now what does that mean? You look like, uh, who's the guy that gets the poison in his ear? Fal- Falstaff? No, well, yeah, you look like Falstaff a little yeah. bit. I think uh, you no, could. You know, when I was young, everybody called me Prince Hal because that's uh, an obvious comparison. What? But um, but now, hmm. I feel like I'm Rosencrantz. 
Yeah, right. Sure, sure. sure. Searching for your Guildenstern. <laughs> oh boy, you're save, still saving that for prison, right? Uh, who Shakespeare? Yeah. Didn't uh, you say one time you were, you weren't going to read Shakespeare until you go to prison? Yeah, I mean, I you cheated I read, a little. You peaked. No, I read the liner notes of Shakespeare's sister. Mm-hmm. Oh sure. <laughs> but, but, what about uh, Johnny hates jazz? You saving that for prison? Oh boy, are you kidding me? I gobbled it up. <laughs> no, you can't avoid Shakespeare, just like you can't avoid the, avoid the Bible. Even though I literally I ran from room to room trying to avoid the Bible, but I couldn't. My grandfather read it all the way through every year. Oh, if you set yourself, right. it's, it's 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 like Infinite Jest, or like if you really set yourself to it and read it in little short bits, you can get through the whole thing. Uh, seriously, though, some of some of there's a lot of repetition. Is the oh yes, oh yes, yeah. I, I have read, I have read port, you know, the highlights of the Bible, good portions of it. Like in a doctor's I, office, one of those like illustrated children's books. I went, you know, I went to Jesuit school, and so there was there was the whole Bible as literature tact mm-hmm. that, that they took, and. Um, I've read good. I've read the Shakespeare that I that I couldn't avoid. But you know, I mean, the older I have it I, all. The older I get, and I mean, you know, this kind of I guess goes back to last week and my cop out about is TV the new books. But I I think it's so much more. It's so much more interesting to see it staged, or let's be honest, to see a movie. Like, you know, if you can't get into Henry V, I can't help you. Like, that movie is so goddamn good. That is the gateway drug for Shakespeare movies. It's really awfully good. There are and some good Shakespeare movies. There are some very good Shakespeare movies. and But, like, reading it is, it does feel like you're eating your vegetables, whereas that language becomes so much more lively and understandable when it's being acted out. It's like saying, well, you know, the God, Godfather 2 is the greatest movie of all time, so you should read this script and write a paper about it. Mm. That's, why, that's oh. where I stand on that. I don't want to read the Godfather 2 script, although now that you mention it, I do want to read the Godfather 2 script. I bet it's really good. (coughs) This episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you in part by Warby Parker. Warby Parker believes that prescription glasses simply should not cost $300 or more. They bypass the traditional channels. They sell higher quality, better looking prescription eyeglasses online at a fraction of the usual retail prices. And that's starting at just $95. You can learn more about them right now by going to warbyparker.com slash supertrain. Now, Warby Parker's designs are vintage-inspired, but they have a contemporary twist. Every pair is custom-fit with anti-reflective, anti-glare, polycarbonate prescription lenses. And every pair comes with a really cool hard case and a cleaning cloth, so you don't need to go out and buy any overpriced accessories. And Warby Parker now offers progressive lenses, starting at $295, including the frames. That's crazy. Warby Parker even offers prescription and non-prescription polarized sunglasses. They've got it all. I realize buying eyeglasses online sounds a little risky, a little bit crazy. How would you know whether they'll fit and how they'll look on you? Well, Warby has you covered. First, their website has a very helpful tool that uses your computer's webcam to give you a preview of how the glasses might look on your face. And it can even help you measure your eyes and your face to get the fit exactly right so you don't end up looking like Harry Carey or, you know, some kind of a doofus. And, you know, unless, of course, that's what you're shooting for. The best part about Warby Parker is their amazing home try-on program. I have done this, and it is super cool. You can try on up to five pairs of glasses risk-free, and they ship them right to your house for free. You can try them on in the comfort of your home over those five days and then just send them back with the prepaid return label. There's no obligation to buy. It's total madness. Please go to warbyparker.com slash supertrain and check out their great selection of premium quality, affordable eyewear and get that home try-on kit for free. Our thanks to Warby Parker for bringing affordable and handsome vision to the world and for supporting Roderick on the Line. <laughs> anyway, oh, I heard, um, what did I hear? No reply at all. No reply at all. 
there's so many that those Don't couple three at all. You take you take your Duke, you take your Abacab. There's just so many. Turn it on again is I'm sorry. Yes, people will say we've talked about this on another show. I don't care. Mm. Turn it on again is an unimpeachably great pop song. Mm. Don't you think? There's there's something that's very hard for people of a certain age to accept, which is that Phil Collins is amazing. Yeah, you know I, I uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. See, now I'm always going to have to sort of side See, with, with the, you. You are the one of the people of well, the This age. is the point. So here's Listen the thing. You. My friend, my friend Anthony has this show called Unjustly Maligned, and you should be on it sometime because it's a really great show. Basically, somebody goes on to his program and talks about something that almost everybody but them hates, and mm-hmm. explains why they like it and why they think it is. You know, as the title says, unjustly, unjustly maligned. maligned. And so, uh, and so, anyway, he he's on his own show. Uh, it's kind of a long story, but he's talking about Genesis, and like I, I get all of that. Like it's just there was this three year period that soured me on Phil Collins, and I love almost everything else. First of all, every indication I've got, Phil Collins, stand up dude. I've heard oh. he's a very nice man. He seems like a nice man on television. I'm just getting that out of the way. But yeah. I mean, I Switzerland. I will sit there and have some red wine. And I will watch all of the old Genesis Live videos. I will yeah. just watch them. I will watch them and watch them. And I will watch Peter Gabriel come out with bat ears on his, on his yeah, head. Yeah, with the flower, yeah. Yeah, oh, right. Bum, 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 yeah. bum. When Winston <laughs> Churchill dressed in drag, he used to be a British flag. <laughs> That's my Peter yes. Gabriel. You like that? But, but yes, I do. But, but the listeners should know that you also uh, uh, side with the French in agreeing that Jerry Lewis is a national treasure. I think Jerry Lewis is an international curiosity, and we mm-hmm. should treasure him because, mm-hmm. because he, is, he is a complex character. Yes. And uh, I think he's uh, very interesting. But when was the last time you sat down and put no jacket required on the turntable? <laughs> And just listen to both sides of that Talk incredible about a trick question. That incredible, incredible document of a, of a time. Well, first of all, I would need to get a turntable, and then I would need to get a copy of No Jacket Required. Well, somebody left that cassette in my somebody left that cassette in my car once, and I made them take it back. Wow! No, see, that's the problem. See, you're, I am with you. I am with them up to the release. And I, I the thing is, I like face value. I love Abacab. I love. Duke, I'm right there up to the release of. How do you feel I, about it's no fun being an illegal alien? Oh, it's no fun. That that's on the the, the self titled Genesis album, I think. <laughs> See, that's where they lost me a little bit. And then he was on Miami Vice, and he was everywhere, and then he was on the fucking Concord between two different Live Aid shows, and it was just we'd reached peak uh, Phil Collins. I don't know. That seemed. I mean, if you inhabit the character of Phil Collins for that, feels pretty good. Yeah. Right, that yeah. somebody rushes you to the airport, puts you on a Concord, and takes you to the second live aid. You've got to be feeling pretty good about yourself. He could have been a lot worse. I will also say, I will say that he is a triple threat. Like he is an amazing drummer, killer, like, drummer. and tasteful. I mean, for for the for the crap that he plays in the in the Nutty Balls time signatures, he's incredibly tasteful and flexible. Um, so as a musician, I think he's, you know, not without peer, but I think he's awfully good. And I think he kind of gets credit for that. He is a great singer, especially when he really lets it rip. And, uh, and I think he's a good songwriter. I think, well, he's, oh, I think he's a good songwriter. And also, great comic book artist. Is that right? Hmm. No. Okay. Although, but the, take Phil Collins. Oh, yes. Put him next to Don Henley. Uh, Don Henley. Super complicated. Also good drummer. Great comic also, artist. Also good singer. Also great comic book artist. Also, mm-hmm. you know, like front man, songwriter, right? 
Right. I mean, right. this is tough. This is, but also reviled by many uh, uh, snobs, including um, Mojo Nixon. Mojo Nixon does not like Don Henley. Mojo Nixon uh, had very strong opinions in the mid to late eighties. But, you know, we wouldn't have had that great uh, reboot of Swamp Thing without Don Henley. I, I, uh, did, did, have we talked about the, uh, the Eagles documentaries? Did you watch I ha- those? Have we? I, 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 had, I did watch the Eagles documentaries. I, 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 I watch them about every six months. It was I, like, I, I, I get completely lost in them. It was like wading through hot pudding for me. <laughs> really? Uh, just, I mean, and I, I say that with the full knowledge that like wading through hot pudding isn't 100% bad. Right. Right? A picture of yourself in like waist deep in hot pudding mm. it's not it's not you probably wouldn't like choose it i think i would have a lot of confusing feelings about that yeah right you wouldn't choose it but if you were on one side of a of a chasm full uh-huh. of hot pudding and you had to get to the other and you and you you knew there wasn't going to be like a wave of it you mm-hmm. just had to wade through it Right, if you if you knew to to a relative certainty that there wasn't like a pudding monster in there, there was yeah. just it was just going to be warm pudding that you're waiting through. Well, I didn't say warm; I said hot. But it, it, oh, sorry, but, hot. Like, let's say you had to spend 15 minutes waist deep in hot pudding to get from <laughs> one side to the other. That's doable. Is you this a do dream that. that you had? <laughs> you can do that. I love the parts in the documentary. First of all, every second Joe Walsh is on screen is pure gold. Totally great. Because he is, right. he's, first of all, he is, he is not only extremely talented and extremely funny, but he's deeply, deeply, unironically damaged. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But it, his amazingness and the fact that there is something like li- electrically wrong with him. <laughs> is, is, he's got the wrong wattage fuse or something. It's absolutely offset by the fact that every moment that Glenn Fry is on the screen is like having dental work with no anesthesia. But the scenes, even in like, I guess up to Hotel California, but the, the, while they were still on the rise, like all the backstage scenes where you start off and you see all the photos of Glenn Fry, Fry wearing sunglasses. And Glenn Fry was like a, you know, he's a guitar guy who sang and did these country songs that were really nice. But you look at them backstage and you can, they're kind of not putting on airs, but they clearly want to be california rock stars yeah. and so it's but it's beautiful to watch them like oh having their marijuana and their acid <laughs> trips and isn't this fun <laughs> and then like it isn't more than two years later that they are clearly waist deep and incredibly hot pudding that there is no turning back from this this world that they had sought well yeah and i think uh, like two years later their best friends were all lawyers <laughs> <laughs> they have a Rolodex. It's David, it's David Geffen and three lawyers. <laughs> uh, the Glenn Fry of all the rock musicians in history, right? Like, uh, it, it, if you look at, I mean, we've all obviously studied photographs of John Lennon taken every thirty seconds throughout his entire twenties, right? So we can we can sit and argue about which was the best Lennon, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of people, and I don't, I'm, I'm, I feel like you are a Lennon in 65 guy? I'm not sure. I'm very definitely a Lennon in 67 guy. After he'd kind of given up on the band. <laughs> right. Just, he was still, he was still phoning it in. Oh, he was, but he was, as we've said so many times, I mean, he was very unhappy and probably deeply depressed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 But that Lennon was like, but from the time, like, that's what makes the revolver sessions such a delight is that like it's the last gasp oh. of these people performing as a band in any kind of a functional way. And when you see the outtakes and them obviously high and Paul with his cool glasses mm-hmm. and like that's the last gasp of the Beatles as they were. 
It's pretty wonderful. But Lennon in 69 is inexcusable. Like there's no, I cannot get on, I cannot get with Lennon in 69, right? I can't get to him. I cannot get with him. I would not enjoy riding on a train with him. Right. He was, I, now he's, he's pretty damaged at that point. If you yeah. said, if you can wade through the hot pudding of let it be, you can just tell that the guy was not right. And yeah, he was I, on the heroin at that point, right? He was on the heroin. He was, and I, I just wouldn't have enjoyed anything about him. I wouldn't have enjoyed hearing about his politics. I wouldn't have enjoyed hearing his theories about, uh, like sexual politics. I wouldn't have enjoyed anything about him. Glenn Fry, not to make, not to really ruin this program by making any kind of comparison between John Lennon and Glenn Fry, but Glenn Fry has this weird period right there in that time you were describing, early 70s, where he just, he looks great. He, he just, he's pulling it off. Oh, yeah. He just, he's, He's amazing. He's he, like, was, he, was, he looked, I mean, given how much of up through the mid-70s, it was really more like the late 60s, mm-hmm. he was, some of those people in the California scene were like strangely modern. Like there's something about him that was very contemporary. Yeah, right. That's right. He, he is, he would, he would absolutely fit in as a member of Father John Misty's band. <laughs> um, and yet he, like he blows it right away. And I feel, I feel like, Glenn Fry with a mustache was like really worked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like the uh, the denim, the denim dudes, denim dudes. Well, That's like a sheepskin, sheepskin collar. Yeah. yeah. Also, I think it takes being in a band like the Eagles. I think it takes a certain amount of guts to get on stage and play an acoustic guitar. Uh-huh. I mean, he was he was really good at, at what he did. Anyway, I I I I. I should be kinder to Phil Collins. I, I should probably do some do some restitution because I really do enjoy him. And I've been sitting here listening to Genesis. I'm right now. I'm looking at a picture of Glenn Fry wrapped in a Mexican blanket in Joshua Tree, and mm. I take everything back that I just said. Mm-hmm. I take it all back. He was inexcusable from the very beginning. <laughs> there was never a single moment of Glenn Fry that he wasn't absolutely appalling. But I mean, a lot of what we're talking about. Oh, but also, by the way, also on uh, Miami Vice, but he he featured. I mean, featured pretty prominently in Miami Vice, and um, yeah. So it's, it's the politics of uh, contraband. That's right. It's a politics of contraband. <laughs> uh, I think. Yeah, I think I'm talking about Glenn Frey in '74. He was already a star, but he thought to grow a mustache, which I like pre Don Fielder. Yeah, that guy was a hell of a guitar player. He was. I'm not. I, I can't believe we've talked about the Eagles this much. Eagles are uh, a complicated topic for a lot of people. Did I did I ever tell you about the first time that I became aware of the fact that people hated the Eagles? Because you know, growing up in the '70s in Alaska without a big brother, let's just stipulate I did not have a big brother. I was getting the Eagles the same way everybody else got the Eagles. They were kind of everywhere. They were everywhere. And my older, well, I just said that I didn't have a big brother. But in fact, I do have two older brothers. But they're much older and they did not function as big brothers for me. They're non-canonical. That's right. They, are, they're, they were uh, big brothers in a different orbit. But one of my brothers gave my dad the cassette tape, or I'm sorry, the eight-track tape of... 
Hotel California because he wanted my dad to hear the song Life in the Fast Lane. And my dad really embraced the concept of life in the fast lane and used to say it all the time, used to quote it. And he didn't really play the eight track, but it was lying around the house. And dad would say like, well, that's life in the fast lane. We're living life in the fast lane. And so from a young age, I was like, life in the fast lane is where we are, first of all, me and my dad. And second of all, it's where you want to be. Mm. And the, the idea that life in the fast lane was not a place that you wanted to be, which is, I think, the message of the song. Uh, dad didn't really dive down, down on the lyrics long enough to, you know, it's a classic, it's a classic like born in the USA problem. Right. People didn't get the, what the song was actually about. But sometime, and it was post high school for me, after I was in Seattle, early 90s, somebody said to me casually offhand, you know, like, oh, that, that band is terrible. They're, they're almost as bad as the Eagles. Mm. And I was like, what do you mean? E- the Eagles are bad? By, how do you mean the Eagles are bad? The Eagles are one of the, they're one of the great bands. They're right up there with Leonard Skinner and, uh, and Traffic. I think they're up there, I mean, in the 70s, they were kind of up there with maybe like the Stones where they were like, you know, like a Mona Lisa band where it's like they were just, they were, they were so there, it would be unusual to have that strong of a negative feeling about them. Everybody, no, nobody disliked them and everybody kind of liked them. I think that they were bigger than the Stones. In the U.S. Well, I mean, I don't, I can't go, I can't go over there and see what it's like to be over in Europe in the mm-hmm. 70s. Mm-hmm. I can't even get there in my mind, but... Mm-mm. I'm always surprised at when you look at record sales, how relatively few records the Stones sold relative to other bands that you, that you don't think of as being bigger than the Stones. Like you think of the Stones as being pretty much top tier by any reckoning, but the Stones didn't really sell that many records hmm. and I mean, obviously, they sold lots and lots and lots of records, but I think that there might have even been Stones albums that that didn't go platinum. Yeah, especially in like the post-exile period, where they they had their own kind of little genre hell for a while, where they they had they had hits. But I mean, like, did some girls sell that many copies? I don't know. Goats Head Soup. No, that's like 69, 68 or 69. Right, but I mean, do you own Goat's Head Soup? Did you ever? No, no, I don't. Um, I have some Greatest Hit stuff, and I have Beggar's um, Beggar's Banquet. Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Um, i got the cake one. I've got Exxon Main Street is one of my favorites. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm, i got those. I've got those. And I had a cassette of some girls, and I had had some singles at the time. But, you know, I mean... (laughs) They're, they've been around for 50 years. People, yeah. people have been feeling like the Stones are phoning it in longer, most of the majority of their career. <coughs> right. But, 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 you know, the Eagles have the best-selling record of all time or something? Well, right? Is that yeah, still true? Greatest, their greatest hits, uh, their first greatest hits record was at one point at least, oh, and then they got Hell Freezes Over. Hell Freezes Over, I think, was one of the uh, highest-selling as well. 
Yeah, yeah, good point. Good. Point. Well, so anyway, I just so so, no, like, you, so you become at this point, young John has become aware that, aware that people hate the Eagles. Yes, and then it was one of those things. I remember the first time somebody said, "Um, I, I was I was working at a pizza parlor, uh, in about 1992, and." Somebody said, you know, can I get extra pepperoni on a slice or something? And I put extra pepperoni on it for him. And the guy said, right on. And I had never heard that. The, the, no one had ever said right on to me in, with that kind of musicality. Right on. And right on felt like a 60s phrase. Mm-hmm. Right on. Mm-hmm. And in 1992, saying right on with that kind of casual, like flippant right on felt very much um, like a someone is knocking on my door. Oh, no. Are you expecting anyone? No. Let me go over here and see what happens. Well, you know, proceed with caution, John. All right. I, I am. This is unusual. All right. All right. You, you stay there. Okay. John's, uh, John's stepping away from the microphone. Hi, Jared. You're going to do spiral alarms yep. uh, starting when? In a couple minutes. Thank you. <laughs> it's really shocking if you hadn't come along and said that. I'll try to let everybody know that I can. Thanks, Jared. Absolutely. <laughs> this episode of Roderick Online is brought to you in part by Braintree, code for easy online payments. To learn more right now, visit braintreepayments.com slash supertrain. If you're a mobile app developer, and I know a lot of you are, you got to check out Braintree. Braintree is the payment solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, and Munchery. Braintree has made the payment experiences in these apps seamless and magical, and now you can add a similar experience to your own app. With excellent customer service and simple integration, Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly. And Braintree's continuous support plus fast payouts means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth. Braintree is helping solve the problem of mobile cart abandonment by offering a best-in-class mobile checkout experience. You've got to try this for yourself. Here's what you get with Braintree. You get a full-stack payment solution. That means support for all payment types that your customers might want. You can start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, and more, all with a single integration across all platforms with superior fraud protection, customer service, and, yes, fast payouts. To learn more right now and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, please go check them out at BraintreePayments.com slash Supertrain. Our thanks to Braintree for taking the pain out of mobile payments and for supporting Roderick on the line. <laughs> this is going to get interesting. Did you catch that? I surely did. Thank you. Was right. Jared? What was his Jared. name? Jared from Fire Protection. Jared and from Fire Protection. Be, Thank you, Jared, for the heads up. They're going to be ringing the bells. Let's get what we can done. You get some pepperoni. You put pepperoni on the pizza. Put pepperoni on this guy's pizza. And he said, right on. And I was like, huh. It was, I, I absolutely remember it standing out to me because it was that great way that culture does where at first it seemed like this one particularly cool guy had taken a phrase from the 60s and had just thrown it out there super cash and and it and it works somehow like right on but then working in this pizza parlor in the next 4 weeks i heard 
then a second guy say, right on. And I was like, wait a minute. I noted it the second time I heard it. And by four weeks in, it had become a ubiquitous uh, sort of catchphrase. Yeah, for appro approximately what year is this? 93? Summer wow. of 93, let's say. Okay. And then it all over Seattle, everyone said, right on. It went, it went viral. It went viral. And I said, right on. And I continue to say right on now 20 plus years later. Mm. And it was just a, it was like the first time I heard dude, you know, it just became, I, I didn't realize in that moment that this was not a passing thing, that this was going to become an, an important part, a key part of the way that I uh, was a cool dude. Because if somebody skateboards up to you, ollies over the curb, flips their board up, grabs it in their hand and says, hey, John, what's up? Uh, it is 85% certain that I'm going to say, right on. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such a great response to so many things. If anybody ollies within a half a mile of me, I'm probably going to say, right on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, same with Eagles hatred. Oh, I see. I heard this guy say the Eagles are bullshit at a party, and I was shocked by it. And within three weeks, every single person I knew, uh-oh. Here we go. Do you hear the bells? I do. Thank God Jared stopped by. Well, you know, they're not... They're so it's not, not really that loud, John. It's not that loud. I think I would it, would... it would wake me up from a nap, but... Yeah. It's a very... I like it. I was expecting more like ring a ding a ding a ding a ding. Yeah, I mean, I got to be honest with you. I was, I would just for your own safety, I would hope for something a little more muscular. That, <clears> yeah, but, that sounds like a Prius backing up. But, but, but the, 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 there's a kind of grinding that's happening underneath the beeping. Do you hear that? Oh, it's, it's almost like it's, it's, it's struggling. Well, either struggling or it feels like. It's more of an apocalypse alarm, right? It's more like a. Mm. Oh, it wants to wants to be a klaxon. A klaxon, right? A, a like a, a, a like an air raid. Yeah, the the December seventh, the morning of. That's right. Somebody standing on a on a wooden tower, like with a lever, mm -hmm. running the klaxon. So I don't know how long that's going to last. I hope it's not disturb. Does it? Is it? Do you think it's disturbing? Oh no, no, I don't. I think it'll be fine. Okay. I mean, do you remember? Do you remember a moment where the Eagles, because the thing, the, there was so much revisionism in Seattle in the early '90s, where everybody agreed that they had always been against the Eagles. Oh yeah, the retcon. Or, Absolutely, yeah, everybody agreed that they had always been. You know, I mean, the the primary one being that every person in their twenties in Seattle had always been punk rock. Exactly. Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's 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 so easy to re revise yourself back into like, what was it? You know, the the, sh the Sex Pistol show in Manchester. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there were supposedly like ten people there, but like every was, that, that was their Woodstock. Everybody mm -hmm. sees themselves as having been there at the Genesis. My God, how long will that go on? Do you think? It's over now. Huh? Uh, you, you're talking about the alarm and yeah, not the revisionism. No, the revisionism will go on and on and on. It'll go on and on. I don't. I'm trying to place. I mean, the the one in my head is like it's a joke in the Big Lebowski that you know. The oh, dude I hate the Eagles. Yeah, yeah right. right. But like, I don't remember that being a meme. 
But 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 no. But the thing is, I don't remember it being a meme. But I definitely remember it being something where everybody just rolls their eyes at the Eagles. Can I give you some numbers just real quick here? Let's hear some numbers. Okay, this is from Wikipedia, which is never wrong. Um, some some of the big ones. Um, long run. I'm just going to give you U.S. numbers. Long run. Seven X platinum. Whoa, seven X platinum. Yeah, that's e- not small. This is that's just this a- is just. I'm just picking out a few here. Uh, Eagles live from 1980. Seven X platinum um hotel california 16x platinum um eagles greatest hit 71 to 75 put out in february of 1976 29x platinum in america alone oh my fucking god how many records are there that have done 30 million i mean there's obviously there's obviously michael jackson's Mm -hmm. uh seminal record thriller had like like seven singles on it I think yeah. seven or eight. Um, let's go. Thirty to million records. That's got to be. That's got to be a handful of records that have ever done that kind of trade. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Thirty million records. Eagles greatest hits. I don't know though. I I I um I I kind of I kind of I kind of like the Eagles. Well, Steve, this is the thing about the Eagles, right? If you can separate, first of all, if you can if you can erase the picture of Don Fry. Wearing a Mexican blanket in Joshua Tree from Glenn, your mind, Glenn Fry. If you can erase, I'm talking about Don Fry now. Oh, you're talking Glenn, about the guy from Steely Dan. Don Don Fry. Don Fry Joe was, Fagan was Glenn, Glenn Fry's older brother, who was a lawyer. And if I can't I'm just going to leave my card here, I can't get the picture of him in a Mexican blanket in Joshua Tree tripping on peyote. Lawyer in a blanket. I cannot. So, I, if you can get those, but the problem is you can't get. No, no, that's all part that of it. Out of part you of it is the, uh, the that those those images. You can't get smugglers blues out of your head. <laughs> the thing about the thing about, about smugglers blues sounds like something on Urban Dictionary. Man, I bought that chick a fucking lobster, and now I got yeah, the smugglers now blues. I, got the smugglers blues. <laughs> I was sitting under a glass coffee table, and and uh, <laughs> she crouched over the top and gave me a smugglers blues. <laughs> No, but yeah. uh, but but the thing is, like, <clears throat> like the uh, the Don Henley singles, mm-hmm. uh, the Boys of Summer, and the uh, the other one about the about uh, Marxist revolution in Nicaragua or whatever his two singles in the eighties were. Oh right, yes, I, I like. Uh, oh, uh, dance, dance, dance. All she wants to do is dance. All she wants to do is dance. That's right. You got uh, uh, Johnny can't read. From his uh, from his uh, less well known uh, first solo album, sure I thought I, I thought Boys like of Summer song. partly because I'm a big Mike Campbell fan. I think Boys of Summer is exquisite. Are you telling me that Mike Campbell of uh, the uh, Heartbreakers of, of the Heartbreakers plays on Boys of Summer? You're kidding! Totally, Mike Campbell. Oh my God, that is one of the even... most tasteful guitar parts ever written. Well, you know he's very good at tasteful guitar. Uh, that, that changes everything and only in a good way. I already really liked that song. I couldn't escape it. It was, there was one particular moment in the eighties when I was still riding the school bus. I was 15. I I couldn't drive yet, obviously. And the school bus driver listened to the radio and you know, in Alaska in the winter, it's obviously very dark and cold on your way to school. And we're all kind of huddled in the school bus and the windows are icing over. And there's nothing to look at outside but just some dark, frozen nothing. And every morning, because that was the style of radio at the time, they would play Don Henley's Boys of Summer 
kind of at the same moment every morning, like halfway through the school bus ride, the tune would come on. They also played Dancing Days by the by Zeppelin every morning at about the same time. So these songs are kind of like drilled into my head and conjure that that ride to school really mm-hmm. powerfully in me. But you know, how do you not like how do you not like Boys of Summer? It's very yeah, wistful. It seems it's really cal- it's I I want to say obviously, but it seems calculated to create a certain feeling and mm-hmm. it it really does that for me. Even even listening to it, I had a certain feeling about it in 1985 uh, and now whatever 30 years later, I still have a certain feeling about it. Well, and that's very you know, it's very evocative and very affecting. That deadhead sticker on a Cadillac line, even it, and the Wayfarers tip mm-hmm. of the hat. Yeah. Even at the time, I felt like those were cynical and contrived, and yet powerfully effective. Because I think deadhead sticker on a Cadillac is a pretty good line. It's a great line, but it felt very much it felt very pandering mm-hmm. of a certain moment in 1980, whatever 80, whenever that was. Four, like eighty-five, eighty-five, where, where that was exactly the kind of wry knowingness that we all craved having. Like, whoa, man, deadhead sticker on a Cadillac, right? Truth Am I bomb. right? Mm-hmm. Am I right? Am I right? And then the Wayfarers was just like some product placement mm-hmm. that really acquitted with the fact that everybody was wearing Wayfarers, except me. I was wearing Varnays. Mm. Actually, everybody was wearing Varnays, too. Let's be honest. There were mm. only two kinds of sunglasses. This then. is just getting worse. <laughs> and it's getting worse and worse. There were Wayfarers people and there were Varnays people. And if I'm true, if I'm honest with myself now, mm-hmm. I realize that I should have been a Wayfarers person. Oh, my God. Deadhead sticker on a Cadillac. You know what I mean? Oh, but I brutal. self-identified as a Varnays yes. person because yes. it... It was more like what I thought I was. It's a little more outsider. It's a little more Adidas than Nike. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm a Varnay's guy. Mm-hmm. But now, mm. I, you know, and I think for a long time, I've, if, I were, if I was honest with myself, it was like, no, you were a Wayfarer's guy the whole time. Michael How, Jackson's Thriller, 42.4 million. That's, been, that's bonkers. But wait a minute. The Eagles was 40, right? 39. Uh, let's see. This is uh, yeah, this is uh, RIAA. I think I'm not sure. I'm looking on the best selling. There's there's a uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight albums that have sold over 40 million copies. If you if you want, oh wait, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is not claimed sales. Claimed sales. Yeah, if you want the real sound, 51, scan, 51 to 65 million claimed sales. 42 certified. Uh, in America, or well, I'm not sure. ACDC you got 25. I'm just I'm just grading on a on a, uh, on a curve here. ACDC, but back in black, 25 million copies. Uh, now, there's some there's some interesting ones in here. Uh, Bat Out of Hell by Meatloaf, 20 that, million. So that is the one when I've looked at this list before, which I have done a thousand times. The thing about SoundScan, I don't. Have you ever known somebody that had access to SoundScan? Not directly. I do remember when it came into being because it's when I was playing in bands and my friend, it was like 92 or so, right? Something around then. Because uh-huh. I remember my, the other guitar player in my band was the manager of, of an awesome, the, the awesome record store in town. And SoundScan changed everything. Because yeah. all of a sudden, everyone, wow, people are not listening to nearly as much of this pop rock as we thought, and way more country than anything ever. Way more ever country, real. right? So much more country. Because well, well, tell, 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 tell the nice people how does what happened in, in the pre-sound scan in the cocaine days versus the post-sound scan. What was the big difference? Sound scan. They're, they're doing the sales at the terminal. It's not shipped copies. It's how many things people paid money for in a store. 
Right, right. right. And, I, and I, you know, I think that the... I think that prior to SoundScan, um, the like the country music people didn't really even that that culture wasn't driven by, or or rather the country music charts were a thing that the the pop culture people just ignored. Who cared? If you if you bought country records, you bought them somewhere. It was like it almost like had a big asterisk on it. Yeah, right. Like like oh. it wasn't it wasn't like I, I'm just you know guessing here, but it's almost like that. Well, that's not really who we're going for, right? Yeah, and and so what? So, and the charts were the charts were reported by radio, right? That was it was like it was Casey Kasem, like who's... I think it was some combination of, you got the Billboard style charts, which were totally crooked, and you've got, at one time, the reporting was based on number of uh, copies that were shipped. Shipped. Which is why you could buy a copy of the Kiss solo albums until like last month. Like, they were in cutout for like 20 years, because uh-huh. the, the, the number that shipped had to be the number, I, I, I'm not sure exactly how it worked, but the record stores got the money back for the cutouts, but oh. they were still counted as being sold, I think. Wait a minute, I'm getting it now. Billboard... Bill, the, because there was no system, Billboard would just call record stores. <laughs> really? Yeah. Billboard had people that called record stores and asked them about their sales. That's crazy. And so so people at the record store would be like, oh, yeah, Kiss Solo records selling, and um, uh, the Eagles record's been selling a lot. But there was also like record companies like David Geffen, I'm sure did this would just send those guys a hundred dollar bill in the envelope totally. and say, "Hey, make sure you make sure you tell them that Don Henley is selling." Really that stuff well. is that's never gone away. Yeah. So, uh, so then all of a sudden they could track it, but then, um, but then the airplay thing was a thing that. Like you remember a lot of those bands that were really, really big on MTV in the early days, it turns out they didn't sell any records at all, but their records were, their, their videos were in high rotation. And so it felt like they were huge. Right. Anyway. So yeah, when, when SoundScan came out, it, it was suddenly revealed that the biggest country records were selling more than the big rock records. Right. And that was the dawn of country music as a, um, Country music is like a major economic and cultural force. Number four, The Bodyguard, 27.4 million. And, and that's why Nick Lowe never has to work again. Well, and also, like, what's interesting to me, and I learned this through, the, through being friends with the Posies. Oh, right, because they were on Austin Powers? No, they were on uh, uh, Reality Bites. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, you told me this. Yeah. If you get one song on a soundtrack like that. So look at look at all the all the other songs on the Bodyguard soundtrack. Right. If you look at Bodyguard soundtrack, there are some people on there that just that just basically punched their ticket. They got some song on there that nobody gives a shit about. But that but that that thing sold 27 million copies and they get some small percentage of every one of those which is which ends up being not small. This is really interesting. But but to have access to real sound scan, which right. is which is a wonderful thing because it enables you to do if if you and I had access to sound scan, we it would basically just be a podcast. We would never 
it would it would take up. You mean like the raw the, the the raw fire hose? Yeah, because you can say to me, tell me how many records did uh, the James Gang sell? I could probably say how many copies of the worst you can do is harm. Worst you can do is harm sold the week before Christmas in two thousand seven, and you could go look that up. You could say how many copies did the worst you can do is harm sell the week before Christmas in St. Louis? Oh man! And I could go look it up, and so it's it's endlessly entertaining and it's beautiful. And I do I have friends that have access to it because it costs it costs fifty thousand dollars or something to have all that data. Uh, the uh, only you know, only record labels and certain, you know, journalists. I mean, you have to pay for it like sure. Like like buying Pro Tools or whatever. It's a it's a it's a thing that um Is that something Barsuk had? Barsuk never had SoundScan, but uh like Merge does or you know, Baker's yeah, Banquet sure, has. Sure. So it's one of the great it's one of the great gags. Oh, Baker's Banquet. Okay. Yeah, right. And so, it, it, <laughs> so you got to, your friend with the glasses would move aside and you get to sit in his chair for a minute. That's right. And, and, <laughs> and my favorite thing to do is I'll be out in the world and I will, you know, I'll, I'll be somewhere and I'll meet some musician and we'll shake hands and hang out and have a coffee and a drink. And, or somebody will be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Can I you, borrow your computer from you? Know, do, you know, do you know David Garza? And I'm like, yeah, I've met David. How are you? And we talk and we sit and have some coffee. And then I, I excuse myself and go to the bathroom and I send a text to my man in Havana. And I say, how many records did David Garza sell in 1997? Or and then I get the data back. And then I can contextualize my relationship with that person. And sometimes it's wonderful. Oh my god, that's so that's thrilling. Because I'll be sitting with somebody and they'll be throwing they'll be throwing attitude at me uh because of how rock and roll they are and I'll then I'll find out what their sound scan numbers are through my through my backdoor man. Mm. And then I'm like, "Oh, you know, what's up 18,000?" <laughs> I don't say it I don't say it to them, mm, but, but they can see it in your eyes. Well, I don't I don't I don't take any shade off of them mm-hmm. after I figure out like Oh, your 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 best selling record ain't shit, fool. <laughs> like just because you know, just because you've got skinny jeans on and you're wearing some and you're wearing a class clash badge on your Levi's jacket, doesn't mean you can pitch attitude at me because you sold twenty one thousand records. Let's check your numbers. And that doesn't, yeah, mm-hmm. that doesn't. That, I don't give a shit about. Good for me. you. Good for you, man. Not afraid to really get in there and mix it up. Yeah, but the problem is you check somebody's numbers and they're like, oh, fuck, he sold 60,000 records and I got to shut up now. Spice Girls album, Spice, from 1996, 28 million. That's impossible. See, I, I, thought, refu- I refuse to accept that. Adele, her album 21, ironically enough, 21.3 million copies. More, so than, it, more than Abbey Road. So, right. And Adele, I mean, she is a contemporary star of the, of the moment and of the times. Yes, and there are a lot more people now. That's true. There are more people. Right? People, people born, people die. Jagged Little Pill, 24.8 million. See, I believe that because I still hear that shit all the time. You didn't like that record? It's not that I didn't like it. It's I think it that, had its charm. Yeah, it is that there was something about the way she chewed on her vowels mm. that was like she was actually chewing on my bones. Um, oh, Alanis, why you chew my bones? Why you chewing my bones? 
and 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 it might have been that I was, you know, that was the the era where Alanis and I are not that different in age, probably. Mm, mm-hmm. And she was she was precisely the age of the uh, girl that was working behind the counter at the coffee shop that I was trying to chat up. Mm-hmm. And that girl was li- actually listening to that record while. Oh, I was sure. Okay. Her. All right. All right. And you can pass was, on that one. Then she was glaring at me because it was really ironic, and I was just like, "Ah, oh, this is these are." These are the worst of times. Little did I know how much worse it was going to be. Uh, but Nirvana, when you think of never mind, sixteen point seven million. See, now that's impressive. That's pretty good. I wouldn't have known that. What about Pearl Jam's ten? Not even up there, right? Sixteen million. I don't see it on this page. I do see the Guns and Roses, twenty-one point three. Appetite did twenty-one three. See that's I mean see that's I mean that's impressive knowledge and that explains why uh, some of my friends who were uh, formerly in Guns N' Roses don't have to work now. Yes, but but just think about see here's what nobody understands. This is what I I, I never could get with the whole. Well, I could kind of get with it, but the whole like Michael Jackson beat up thing about how he was in in bad shape for money. Like well, it's you it's ramifications because if you go in and you like build up this lifestyle and you have a fucking giraffe and like you do all this stuff like that's quite a nut. It's ramifications. Every, it's ramifications. You get all that stuff. I'm not saying it's good, bad, or indifferent. All I'm saying is that, like, if you've never, just because you've never had as much money as Michael Jackson, doesn't mean you can't have a little sympathy for like what happens today. So, if you had been planning out the last 20 or 30 years of your life based on how the last 15 years went, or put better put, what if what if what if you were Nick Lowe, and like you ha- you were spending money as though it were 1999. Mm. Just assuming that, hey, this CD thing's going to just keep going up and up and up. I'm just saying it must be a pretty different world, not just for, for the, the guy from Galaxy 500, but for, like, for everybody. It must be so crazy today. I just can't even imagine what the graphs look like for some of this stuff. I think Michael Jackson's problem was that he, he, he took out payday loans. Right? Oh, he did, like, high-end payday loans. Yeah, he was just he, – he, he knew that the money was going to come in, and so he took out big loans from – from uh, shady operators based on his future earnings. And then all of a There's sudden... There's a lot that he could borrow against. I mean, he, yeah. he owned the Beatles. He owned the, well, sorry, the, the Maclan catalog, right? Right, right. Northern Songs or whatever. Yeah. Um, but he got, you know, the problem with that is then, then you're, on, you're on some ups and downs and you're paying 18% interest. And, you know, I, I do not think that he was very wise... Well, I think about this all the time in the sense that I'm lucky that I never made any money at all until I was 40. Right, right, right. Because by then, all my patterns were established. I always live like, um, I always live basically like the cook on a wagon train. I've got my, I've got my one pan and a bag of dried beans and some and a and a hand hand coffee grinder. <laughs> and, it's closer to the truth than I realized. You know, you and, do. You drink moldy coffee. Yeah, you eat. You eat large. <laughs> you eat buckets of food. Yeah, but I, I cook all my food in one pan. <laughs> I throw I throw some pork fat in there, and then I throw some beans in there. Go out there and ring the dinner bell. Ding 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 ding. Come on, get it, boys. <laughs> and uh, you know, and so now I, I now that's the thing. I'm really ready for a big, huge pile of money to fall on me because I know. 
I would never take out a payday loan. I would never assume that I would ever make any more money after that. Yep, yep, yep. It would be really nice right now for, you know, somebody to ring my doorbell. <laughs> or something other than a warning about a fire alarm. <laughs> yeah, to somebody ring my doorbell and I open the door and there are two guys, two kind of big guys mm-hmm. in in those black suits where you feel like, yeah, somebody somebody paid good money for these suits, but these guys are just so big that it's hard to get a suit to fit right. Yeah, yeah. And they're both wearing sunglasses, and one of them has one of those uh, clear earphone, curly Q earphones. Oh, yeah, absolutely, suit. yeah. And they say, John Roderick, and I go, yes. And they go, like, can, can we scan your retina or get a thumbprint? They're going to yeah. need some proof. We're going to need some proof. Does, does one of them have a briefcase that's handcuffed? No briefcase because because we're talking about a, we're talking about a larger sum of money than can be contained in a briefcase. No bearer bonds. No bearer bonds. And I go, yeah, I'm John Roderick. And they go, uh, great. There's somebody who would like to talk to you. Oh. And then and I look out into the front and there's like kind of you know <laughs> a homunculus of a man being pushed up in a wheelchair. <laughs> no, there are three. You are three, John Roderick. <laughs> three black suburbans, right? And then one oh, of, okay. Mm-hmm. And the door the door opens on one of them, and a guy gets out. He's a young guy. He's wearing a t-shirt. Maybe he's got a uh, maybe he's got a hoodie. Oh, he could be in the app class. App class, exactly. He's wearing a hoodie, but he's also got a suit jacket on, but it's kind of, you know, like plaid or whatever. And he's like, oh, my God, John Roderick, am I right? He's like, right on. And he ollies up to my front porch, and I'm like, hey, man. And he's like, hey, what's up, shaka bra? Gives me some kind of complicated handshake. Yep. And then he's like, listen, big fan of Roderick on the line. Just wanted you to know, tomorrow my company is going public. And I flew up here just to say that for all the help you've given us, I just want to, I want to have you in on this initial public offering. And I'm just, I'm just going to give you 20 million shares. Mm. Uh, he, he already paid for them. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're just, it's just, he just had them earmarked because mm. he recognized the importance of Roderick on the line to his whole, I mean, the, the thought technology is built up in him and enabled him to be. Successful. It's like a MacArthur Genius Grant, but money. Exactly. Like and then a, I yeah, go, yeah. what, who, me? And he's like, all I need you to do is sign a couple of pieces of paper. And then a guy gets out uh, with, the, with thick glasses who kind of looks like the guy um, in uh, Blade Runner who, is, uh, who designs eyeballs. Oh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And he comes out and he's got a bunch of like complicated. I'm not signing any pieces of paper. It's all digital. Right, but like you put your fingerprints. Yeah, but he's got like a, a digital pince nez. So yeah, exactly. And, and then he gives you one, and it's a virtual reality contract. You have to walk into a virtual office. Precisely. Maybe this is the product. Maybe the product is this is a company that makes virtual contract experiences. And the kid is standing there, kind of proud and kind of smug, and like rocking great, back and forth. Great, on right? sales. Am I right? Am I right? Look at this. Hey, turn your head to the side. Okay, now turn it sideways. All right. What What do you see? Huh? 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 And I'm like, amazing. This is incredible. I don't deserve this. And he's like, listen. This is the least I can do. This is the least I can do to repay you. And then the whole thing gets back. They all pile back into the, into the suburbans, which it turns out are, are hydrogen powered. Mm. And then off they go. Yep. And then the next day it's on the front page of all the newspapers. Oh, I wouldn't want I'm that like, part. Fuck. Well, no, not not my not my thing. Oh, but, but the, the uh, it blew up. This is, it's 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 di- the IPO. digital digital contract store offices have changed the way that we do everything. It's literally disruptive. That's right. And it's an incredibly disruptive product and shares. Uh, it's a fire sale on these things. 
They're worth $300 a piece. Uh, the stock split on its first day. And I'm just sitting there like, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I take my dinner bell down and my, and my one no, pan. No, I don't think so. I don't think pan. so. No, I, think... I, I, put them in a, I put them in my small bag. And your bindle? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, I, and I lock the door of the house. And, you know, and then I'm just like kung fu. Just, set it on set it on fire. I just I just start walking the walking America's roads. Oh, I love that! I love that as the last act, though, is that you finally you 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 finally get the uh, get the possum. You just you, you pack a bag, you walk away, you make sure your family's out. You right. just you literally set it on fire. And set walk it away. on fire. It's See just you, like, Gary. Take it easy, buddy. It's, it's right just on. Like fucking, <laughs> it's like a Norwegian funeral ship. I just set the whole thing on fire. Would you say Fuck goodbye? You, Gary. Would, you, would you say goodbye to Gary? You got one last chance to chat. So I had a, I heard a very interesting conversation between Gary uh, and his uh, his landlord Tris, his landlord Drix, uh, yesterday. Where is she this, was, the, this is the lady who's been there for a while, the lady you talked to. Yeah, she was yelling at him. She came out and she was like, "Gary, Gary, wake up!" Gary's like, Ugh, and he, then he, I hear the van door slide open, and she's like, "Is my cat in there?" He's like, I don't even know. What do you? And she's like, I told you never to take my cat into your van. And he's like, I don't even know. I don't think so. And then you can hear this is not a big van. It's a, it's like a shorty van. And you can hear the two of them trying to figure out whether her cat is in his van. Oh man, I do and, not want to search Gary's minivan. And they cannot tell. Neither, are, neither of them. Gary, Gary, it's not just that Gary's not copping to it. He's actually legitimately not sure if there's a cat in his van. I think Gary knew, but he's, he's, he's playing dumb. Mm. And then it turns out the cat is in the van. And she yells at him for 10 minutes about the, about the cat. And then he starts to, after he wakes up a little bit, he starts to yell back at her. And he says, at one point he says, um, well, I know one thing, and that is that I don't know. Hmm. And I was like, that seems like something I should write down. That was uh, Socrates, I think. Now I was waiting. Now I was awake, right? <laughs> this is what woke me up in the morning. And then they started yelling at each other, and she was like, you don't yell at me, Gary. You do not yell at me. And he was like, I just feel like I do all the work around here. No, I ne- nobody ever gives me any credit. And I'm trying to think of a single thing that Gary has ever done that I've ever seen. Um, but I didn't want to get involved. I didn't want to open my window and be the, you know, be the, <laughs> stick my head out with my, you know, my <laughs> hair, and hair curlers. <laughs> yeah. And we'll start waving my pan at him. Gary, you never do anything around here. You shut up over there. <laughs> and this is all uh, the, the, the latest news, of course, is the people next door to, to, uh, to where Gary and Skeeter live. They have a rooster now and it's a, it's a young rooster, a, um, He's just coming into his own. And so his cockadoodle-doo is, is pretty fucked up. It's an immature cockadoodle-doo. Mm. It kind of sounds like a... He's kind of, kind of pubescent as roosters yeah. go. Yeah, and it's just like, are you kidding me? When does it end? But on the plus side, the possums are out. Possums are out. T- 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 totally just not there. No, no, no noise, no traces, no nothing. So we trapped three possums. And they went to live on a farm. 
And then my mom, in her inimitable style, uh, this is like the, the last days of my political campaign. So I'm working all the time on the campaign. I got no time to think about anything. And my mom's like, listen, I can't abide this. I cannot abide that possums are getting into your house. And I think everybody thought that I was crazy or something until I trapped three possums. And then it was like, oh, shit, he has possums living in his house. And so my mom came out at 5 o'clock in the morning, as she does, and she strung a wire mesh around the the base of my entire house. So you, you talked about this on another program. Is this really yeah. true? She dug a trench and dug put down trench, chicken wire. Put down, to put down tight mesh. John, John, for people who house. might be new listeners to our program, how, can I ask roughly how old your mom is? She's eighty-one years old. Okay. She's out there, but she starts at five in the morning because it's cooler, and she's you know she's up already. So why not get to work? And so by noon every day, she'd be like, "Well, that I'm done for the day," and she did it on her own time. But in the meantime, you know, the house next door got torn down. Uh, on the other side and all the rats that were living in that house went everywhere. And so then just as we were getting the possums out, I now had rats in the, in the ceiling. And so then I had to trap the rats, but I've now trapped the rats. I've trapped the possums. Everything is trapped. And in the meantime, my mom hermetically sealed the, 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 the foundation of the house. And, um, and then I lost the election, so now I have all the free time in the world. Uh-huh. <coughs> Excuse me. And now my house is, um, I think, impermeable. It's a real roller coaster for you right now. I just, it's, you know, a lot of ups and downs. And now I can feel autumn is coming, but also a lot of smoke in the air right now from all the forest fires. Oh, yeah. It's uh, Oregon and Washington got all kinds of uh, smoke going on. Yep. And my entire family is going to Paris without me. Next week, and so for did you find out by accident, or did they tell you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was the thing where actually all those suburbans pulled up out front, and so the guy jumped out and he was like, "I'm taking your family to Paris." I was like, "Oh shit, I'm I'm really busy right now. Go Paris." So they're all going to Paris, and then my mom and sister are going to Russia, and I am going to be all alone, all alone, not just all alone, but like all alone in America. Mm. You need a project. I feel like I do need a project. You do. I mean, I don't be ego assertive, but you, this, this, I mean, the, the obvious ones are there. You could, you could work on your, your shoegaze album. You could, uh, you could, you could uh, finish that fucking book. There's all kinds of stuff you could mm-hmm. do. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to be a house project. This could be a project of the mind. It could be a project of the soul and heart. I could. But you need, you need something that's going to keep you occupied where you might have something, you know, you can hold in your hand when you're done. Okay. Well, let, now let, maybe we should put this to our listeners. Okay. Here are the choices. All right. Should I? Finish the Long Winters record, which is a fully-fledged rock record, which only needs lyrics. Should I... <laughs> Your ma- Long Winters record is done except for lyrics. That's right. <laughs> Should I so make... the sound of my palm hitting my face. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's one. That's one. Should mm-hmm. I make a record of super sad solo acoustic piano jams? Where I sing in a low register, sort of gravelly, not Tom Waitsy, but like sad, breathy, slow piano jams. You're gonna make a Fiona Apple album. Yeah, basically. Should I uh, make um, 
like a bleeps and bloops record of loops and um, like up tempo uh, electronica pop e- e- EDM, John? Not EDM, but like <clears throat> like um, like electropop, electroclash, something, something, yeah, something some, with loop, bleeps and bloops. Yeah, something like that. So those are the three musical options. Okay, I could finish my book about my walk across Europe. I could graduate from the University of Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could. Uh, write a different book about my recent experiences or I could set to work on developing a television show for the internet. Okay. What, what, so that's you, like six. Yeah. <clears throat> Something like that. You got, no, that, you've got long winners, you got long winners, you got uh, bleeps and bloops, you got low register piano. Right. Uh, you've got finished the book about the walk. You've got, uh, Graduate from college. Oh, sorry. Graduate from uh, the University of Washington. Yeah, that's easy to do. It wouldn't take much, but it's you know. It would so there's require... gonna be some paper paperwork. There's paperwork. Too. Not as creative. You could write a new book about your recent experiences. Yeah. And what was the last one? Oh, oh uh, write write and write a TV show for the internet. Develop a television show for the internet. Are these all roughly the kind of things that maybe if you not not necessarily finish, could you make a pretty good cut in most of those over two or three weeks? I think if I devoted myself entirely to any one of those things for two weeks where it was just like, this is all you're doing for two weeks, I'm far enough along on all of those. If, if I spent nothing but two weeks deciding to graduate from college, I would graduate. Mm-hmm. If I spent nothing but two weeks writing lyrics to the Long Winter's Record, I, would, I feel like I would need something additional to that. Like, not just this is all you're doing for two weeks. But there are real consequences. I don't think that there are any consequences to not finishing because I've already endured all of those. Mm-hmm. But there, if there were some real – if finishing in two weeks, finishing that record produced some, some kind of immediate result like, like uh, that, the, that day you will be you – know, you will be ushered into the, to a new room – in your own house that you didn't know was there. <laughs> so, something, something mm-hmm. where, where for, like I have a, I have a, I, it's not just two weeks from now I'm going to have these songs two weeks more worked on. Right. It's that two weeks from now if this record is done, then X. Um, like, yeah, at two weeks, uh, I don't think that would be enough to finish the book about the walk across Europe, but it, but it, would, it wouldn't hurt it. Which, um, off the top of your head, don't overthink it. Which one do you feel the most energy or enthusiasm about? The TV must be interesting because that's totally new. Yeah, but the TV is the TV TV program to really do it would it's incredibly collaborative. It would require a team of you'd have to really work with other people. Yeah, five to ten people, and yeah. and that is less of a challenge for me than it would have been a long time ago. It's just the challenge is finding those five to ten people and having them want to do it also. Would you be doing the music at your home or would you have to go to a studio? I think Does, that uh, uh, the songwriting part I could do in my home. Hmm. The um, recording it. But that, that's the thing. I don't think I could finish the album in two weeks, but I could finish the songs. Mm-hmm. And finishing the songs, it would require a little bit of... of Brian Enoizing myself, mm-hmm. you know, I would have to, uh, I would have to adopt some oblique strategies. Get a little stack of cards. I would have to say good enough, 
multiple times. I would have to do a thing a week style thing uh, or a thing a day style thing, which is very hard for me to say good enough. Um, yeah, some of these could be a little bit ambitious mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. that amount of time. Yep. Well, I mean, the thing is, I, I'm not limited to two weeks. I could extend that deadline to a month, but at a month, it seems far enough away that I what probably if you shot? What if you shot to record whatever material you needed to produce the equivalent of an EP of low register piano songs? Okay. All so right. I'm just saying, like you could record enough for an album, then choose the whatever three to five best mm-hmm. EP. Well, I don't know what you call it, but the idea the idea would be: what if you what if you your goal was to have <clears throat> however much you write and record, have three to five finished things that you really like a lot. That that seems pretty doable, and you could that do does. it right right there with the piano. That seems doable. That seems that seems eminently doable. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, scotch the democratic process. I think the listeners should be able to say, you know, what, what they think. But mm-hmm. you know, the the ambition. Uh, you know, you could use a win right now. You could use a win. That's uh, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Give yourself a win. Yeah. Put 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 some points on the sports board. Put points up on the sports board with by scoring some goals. People like it when you play piano, John. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a terrible piano player. But um you're, and not, that, I, you're not that good of a guitar player. Well, that's true too. But you know, yeah. new songs, kind of exciting. It's a new thing. See, now that feels doable. You know how to do all those things. Mhm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just tossing it out. I did a show the other day with the uh with the Watkins family. Yeah, I saw a photo of you with them and I saw did I see was that Photoshop? Was that really you with Fiona Apple in a photograph? Yeah, it was me and Fiona Apple. Uh, and the Watkins kids, uh, Sarah and Sean Watkins, who were the who were two thirds of Nickel Creek. Oh, were they the the, the bluegrassy country ish? Yeah, that's right. Bluegrass- oh, I enjoy them, John. Yes, they're very very good. They're awfully good. I've heard them on NPR, and they're good. They're extremely good, um, and um, they're also extremely nice. But they are they are extremely good in a way that is. Um, it's one of those things where you're sitting in a room and you're like, these guys are my friends and they are musicians and I am a musician. And they have put out records and I have put out records and we are of the same class. And then Sarah pulls out her violin and Sean picks up his guitar, an instrument that I also play. And they say, well, we should learn a tune for tonight's show. Uh, why don't we do... That song by the Carter family, uh, Somebody Left My Chicken Up in the Holla, or whatever. Two, three, four. <laughs> That's right. Two, three, four. And then he goes, and he starts And I'm like, holy shit. They're really good musicians. And then they'll, then they'll get to the chorus, and they'll do a thing, and they'll stop. And Sean will say, I think instead of C sharp there, you want to go all the way to the E. And she's like, really? And then they they don't even really count it off. They just launch back into it. And she goes to the E. And then they both get a really satisfied look on their face. And then he says, yeah, because that, then that makes it a seven. And they And then she says, let's do it again. And they do it again. And she puts a little a little like frill in there and then the second then they do it again and then he catches the frill 
the se- the next time without they don't say anything. Uh, I could I could watch that all day. And I'm sitting in a chair like And so then they've got a I can play a C chord in three different places. Exactly. And then so then a gal walks in and she's in a she's in a really uh like a really nice dress. She's a beautiful uh, woman. And oh, incidentally, they're all very handsome. I mean, they're all very lovely looking people also. And the, the, she walks in and she's, she's, um, she looks like somebody out of a, um, uh, their friend looks like a woman out of a TV reenactment of the early days of the Ryman auditorium, mm. like a, a contemporary, uh, a contemporary TV show of like the fifties, uh, the fifties in Nashville. Mm-hmm. So she's she's perfectly put together, but also she looks modern, just modern enough that you know that you're watching a reenactment. And I think to myself, oh, here is a friend, or here that she's going to MC the show, or maybe she's a vocalist. But she pulls out a violin, and they start the three of them playing. And you realize that this woman is an incredibly good violinist also. And they are now playing harmony with one another on the violin, two fiddles. And doing the same business of like they'll stop and one of them will say, well, why don't we just do the, why don't we do the, um, oh, God damn, oh, God damn, got you, got uh, got caught with your pants down. And I'm like, what the fuck is that that they're talking about now? And then they all go, which apparently is, oh, God damn, got caught with your pants down. And I realized that I am not a musician at all. Right. That they are musicians at a level where they, they, have, they are speaking a common language that they understand and are able to um, – they're able to speak fluently. And by comparison – like my knowledge of my instrument and my knowledge of music as a language is, is very much like Spanish 101. And I'm so pleased that whatever course my life has taken has delivered me into this backstage room to be a part, to be just someone sitting in a chair while this goes on around me. And knowing that this is their life, they do this every night. And they have this, this, uh, this facility uh, and so, yeah, right. If I think too much about my piano, my slow, sad piano EP and realize that there is an aspect of it, which will just be a primer on how badly John understands the piano, right? Yeah. That could be the title of it. <laughs> um, but I cannot be inhibited by that. No, I have to just say, this is a document of my particular orbit around the sun, which is, which is not comparable to anyone else's. And in my, or, in, my, in my multiple orbits around the sun, this is what I've come up with. Here's how I figured out how to, uh, you know, I found this box that has these white and black levers. And um, even though there were people and books around that could explain how it works to me, I ignored them. And now I've, this is what I came up with. Um, so that's the, that, that has to be my approach, but like the experience of watching other musicians. Oh, and so then I, I get on stage with them that night and play some songs and their band is those two. And then Fiona Apple. 
and then the drummer from Lone Justice. What? And the bass player from Collective Soul. Or, what? Uh, Collective Soul, is that what it was? Yeah, I think so. I used um, to love Lone Justice. Me too. Mm. Um, and, uh, and David Garza, who I referred to earlier in this conversation, <laughs> playing the piano and the, uh, and the guitar. And it's like their entire band is just awesome musicians who are like, or maybe it was soul coughing. I think maybe the bass player was from soul coughing. Wow. Um, yeah. It was the bass player of soul coughing, not collective soul. Tight, uh, tight, tight group. Uh, really tight group of really, really, really dynamite players who all were dynamite and uh, playing music that just, you know, sort of effort, effort, effortlessly tumbles, tumbles down like a waterfall. It made me really glad, actually, um, because for whatever reason I was invited in and um, it feels much more like where I belong. Even even recognizing my uh, my limitations. Uh, well, just to, to state what seems obvious to me, and I don't necessarily mean this as consolation, but I mean you come at it from a different point of view. You, uh, to, in my mind, you you know, I don't know. It's, you're not being too hard on yourself, but you're being a little hard on yourself. You, it strikes me you come at it more as a singer songwriter, like you come at it as somebody who you have learned guitar and piano in order to write and perform songs. Mm-hmm. Which is different. It's different than coming up and and you know spending years in music theory or a conservatory or something like that. It's just it's a different approach. And I mean, and to, to state the super obvious, like one of your most beloved songs is one of the simplest songs, like next to Roadrunner or Louie Louie, <laughs> your most acclaimed song in some ways. It's is the the most basic three chord song ever written, but you imbued it with so much heart that people can hear a three chord song in the two thousands and cry. Which Ro- I, runner, I think Ro- is a runner <laughs> going faster miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, that's what you well, should do. You should do. You should do a bunch of Jonathan Richmond covers <laughs> with the radio on. <laughs> Quite a little chewing gum rapper. Hey, hey, no, but I mean, right? I mean, like, and like a little kid could play uh, Commander Thinks Aloud and make people cry. And I think there's nothing. I mean, I mean, it's it's not Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, but it's not supposed to be. But, no, but anyway, you, you meant that, that, so that, that anecdote was mostly a positive. I thought you were going a different direction. That was a positive thing. You liked being around those people, even though you maybe didn't feel quite up to muster in terms of like the chemistry they've got. But I'm looking here at Dave, David Garza's page uh, on the Wikipedia, and he works with Nickel Creek, Grantley Phillips, Fiona Apple. He's, he's in the Largo crowd, it sounds like. Oh, it's all, it's all very Largo for sure. But boy, you know, boy, he's that, 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 that John Bryan, man, that guy can just, he just, he just plays on whatever. He can just start playing anything. And the, and this, th- that's the thing about this entire group. They're all the, that style of musician. And you know, I've, I've spent plenty of, plenty of years around people that you put any instrument in their hand and they go, huh, how does this work? And they, you know, the first thing they start doing is tuning it, which right away, if you hand somebody an instrument that they've never seen before and the first thing they start doing is tuning it, you know that you're in trouble. <laughs> this is called a Chapman stick. Hmm, yeah. I think it's a little flat. <laughs> and then they just start figuring it out and the music just pours out of it and you're like, oh, right. You, it's not that you don't know how to play it. It is just that 
but yeah. like a kind of skill you think of as coming from um, jazz musicians, improvisational jazz musicians, but applied to you know the, uh, rock vernacular. Well, or that uh, the 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 Nashville door into rock and roll is such a different door. You come through the Nashville door, and you have all this knowledge that applies or that you learned initially in the really, really tightly fenced off world of Nashville songs where there are no surprises or, or, or mountain songs, you know, hillbilly music. Right. I mean, it's, it's almost like blues where there's a pretty prescribed form. And even when there's like a fruity chord, you can pretty much guess what the fruity chord is going to be. You know what it's going to be. And all you have to do is hear it once and you're going to catch it the second time around. Or, you know, every song, a lot of the hill songs, they do have one surprise in them. Mm-hmm. But, all you have to do is learn the surprise and the rest of it is, you know, is just a, it's just a matrix. But then you, you come out of that room and or you come out, you come from that world and you walk through the door into rock and roll, you still bring all that knowledge with you and the, rock and roll isn't that different. Maybe the songs have two surprises. Um, but, you know, building it the, the other way from, from the direction I came, which is like learn all the surprises or don't learn, uh, don't learn nothing, first of all. That was my first rule. But write your own surprises and see if you can make surprises that fool everybody. And, you know, and I have, I've, I've had a lot of success making surprises that fooled really good musicians. Um, but what I don't have is all that connective tissue knowledge that, you know, I mean, if somebody played something for me, it's all, it all feels like a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. It's just like, wow. I mean, like, a, you know, all that stuff that Jonathan Colton knows about how chords fit together, it all seems like magic to me. Just like, just oh, like, yeah. And how he can combine, like, in a way that is not showy, but the way he combines what's happening with the music, what seems like fairly simple music, and then combining that with what seems like fairly simple harmonies, but being able to, like, bridge these little sections together. Paul and Storm are really good at that, too. I mean, they, they have yeah. so much vocabulary that they can pull out in, when they're performing with, with the combination of, you know, the musicality and the singing. Like, that, yeah. that's, that's just watching that happen in front of you is just stirring. And it comes from learning 10,000 covers, uh, I think, in Paul and Storm's case. I mean, Jonathan, the thing that people don't forget about, John, or the, people, the thing that people forget about Jonathan Colton is that he majored in music at Yale. So he learned, it's like majoring in French at Yale. You had better be able to speak French. You find all those little wormholes between, between keys and styles and things like that. Without, without having to do the math in your head, you just kind of say, oh, there's, there's this here and there's this there. And, you know, like you say, there's one twist or one surprise in, in, in most rock songs. But he finds a way to like, and, and with the lyrics too, with, with the, the lyrics and the, I don't know, he's, the guy's a total package. Yeah, that's the thing you can't, that's the thing you can't, uh, you can't teach. You can't teach that lyrics thing. You, uh, would, it, would it kill you to be civil? I sing his songs to myself all the time. I'm just always singing a Jonathan Colton song. Is that right? Oh yeah. I, I they're they're just the thing is his songs like they may be giants. Oh, why did I even say this? Here you I, go. I, well, because like I'm just gonna say three syllables. Doctor Worm is Doctor Worm hmm. the greatest song of all time. It's not even the greatest they might be giants song of all time. But once I hear Doctor Worm, I will be singing it all the time for three grown up days. He's dun, not a real dun, doctor, dun, dun, dun. but he but is, he a, is real a real worm. worm. Yeah, that's right. He thinks he's getting better on the drums, but he can handle criticism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very oh annoying. Oh, my God. 
wish um, those guys would. Uh, I wish those guys would share a little bit of what they have with me. I don't know how they would go about doing that. But. Well, yeah, and what you just described, though, of you know, um, I mean, we know we're both fans of things like the rock documentaries and behind the music, and like I could just watch that stuff all day long. But in that case, that's a retrospective, super interesting retrospective. But in the case of what you're describing, like watching that happening in in real time in a room is. It really, that's an overused word, but it's a little bit magical. It feels like there's something alchemical happening that nobody in the room can really exactly identify. But when you watch it, you're like, what did you just do? How did, how did all of that just come together? And then you did two more things that came together and you didn't even have to talk about it. It's just, it's, it's so amazing. It's, you know, anybody who's great at their job, working with other people who are great at their job, like I, I could watch that stuff all day long. Yeah. You know, that's what it boils down to. Right, but it's, this it sounds uh, like uh, inspiring to you in the sense that uh, this is me, you maybe want to do more of this uh, music stuff. Maybe. Well, it is my, um, it is the world that I have struggled within for a long time, and uh, running for office absolutely reminded me that whatever my struggles were in in figuring out how to solve my music problems. Um, those struggles from within, from within a political campaign, those struggles suddenly seemed like the funnest, most awesome problems to have. (laughs) Like, uh, what, what was your problem? It was hard to write lyrics. Oh, well, why don't you think about that on your way to this meeting in a union hall where people are going to, um, where people are going to be visibly not interested in your ideas, uh, and then then let's talk about how hard it is to um, to to finish lyrics that at least your fans are waiting for with bated breath. It's it, there's something um, thrilling and life affirming uh, about having challenges problems or however you want to phrase it to, to have problems that you can understand and results that can matter. I think what mm-hmm. drives us crazy is to feel like we don't have power over the kind of work that we're doing and to feel like even if it went flawlessly, it still wouldn't matter. And like as much as it seems, maybe it seems silly to be like a guy who writes lyrics for rock songs, but it's a problem you really can understand. And it's a result that really can matter. And it, it really is just up to you to do it, which is a very, very different kettle of fish than what you've had since April or whatever. Yeah. Well, and, and, and in particular, like not taking for granted the fact that there are people who genuinely want, uh, genuinely want what I, what I'm trying to make. And, um, they're not, yeah, I don't have to convince them. They are, they're waiting already for this thing and it is hard to do, but that difficulty, um, the the, pay, the 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 payoff is not it's no small thing to to finish a record and know that Matt Howie wants to hear it and he's not just he's not pretending that he wants to hear it mm-hmm. he you know he's he's been waiting for a long time and a lot of people have but you know that record still has to be good i'm not just going to make some shitty record just to make those dorks happy yeah you're above that right mhm no, that's, that's, that's a smart way to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you guys. Listen, yeah, wait a little longer. How's, how's that feel? 
How's that feel? It takes a long time. I got to think about it. Mm-hmm. You got two weeks. Yeah. Go. Alan Z. 